Hello, Loiseless Podcasts. Before you start listening to this week's episode, I want to remind you all to register for this year's Outlook webinar on December the 8th at 9am UK time. You can go to loiseless.com and follow the banner at the top of the homepage or follow the link in the podcast notes. But sign up, you must. This is the big one. It's our annual look at the forces shaping shipping, and I have gathered some of the industry's leading lights to offer you some exclusive insights. We have Carrie Troth from Shell, Magda Kapsinska from the European Commission, Rasmus Back-Nielsen from Trafigura, and Chris Vernicki from ABS. Trust me, you do not want to miss this one. I guarantee it's the one hour of 2022 that is going to set you up for the whole of 2023. Register for free today, and I'll see you next week. But for now, on with this week's edition of the podcast. The Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Since joining MSC two years ago, Soren Toft has had quite the ride. He moved over from Maersk just as demand was rocketing, supply chain congestion was getting serious, and freight rates were well on their way to the sky-high levels that presumably most CEOs would never even dare dream about. Then, of course, there was the extraordinary expansion at MSC. Now the world's largest liner operator, MSC's second-hand purchase spree has already added around 250 vessels to its fleet just in the past two years. Factory new buildings and forward charter commitments and it amounts to one of the most impressive strategic plays in modern shipping history. But is the industry eyes a near-term future getting closer to what passes as business as usual these days? The challenges facing CEOs like Mr. Toff do not get any easier. So I'm delighted to say that Mr. Toff found some time this week to sit down with me and discuss some of the challenges facing shipping and where he sees the industry heading. And inevitably, we started with the big one, decarbonisation, or more specifically, should I say, some of the regulatory challenges heading the industry's way. Now, MSC has made no secret of its concerns regarding the forthcoming Carbon Intensity Indicator, or CII to you and me, which MSC reckons is going to absorb about 7-10% to of capacity across the global container fleet when it comes into force next year. So I started by asking whether... Despite all the concerns regarding unintended consequences and weak enforcement that we all know about, whether he thinks that CII would ultimately be able to do what it was created for, to reduce shipping's emissions. Well, uh, let me let me say, uh, Richard, that uh, we're going to comply with the, with the CII regulations and and any other regulation uh, coming out as a as a diligent uh, company. Um, I think the CII will will probably, with time, uh, reduce emissions. Uh, but as we have also done uh, publicly, we have some concerns about uh, CII. Initially, we had some concerns about some of the lacking adjustment factors. Uh, for instance, initially there was no adjustment for reefer containers, which meant that you know, as the container industry is transporting the world's food or a lot of it, essentially you would be penalized for doing that. So the good news is that uh, was corrected for. But there are other unintended consequences, as we have also laid out in the public. Uh, one, uh, that uh, ships in port are, are penalized, but we have to take ships into port. It's kind of the whole uh, notion of trading. Uh, and secondly, the unintended consequence I also believe is that short sea trades are affected more because the relative share of the time in port for a schedule for a short sea uh, operation is of course so that you spend less time on the on the on the oceans. So I think those are some of the 
unfortunate consequences of uh, of this but we will comply uh, for sure um, and uh, we expect that uh, the CII at least in its initial phase the first uh, five years that have been charted will absorb something to the tune of uh, plus minus 10 percent capacity mm. and that will have a, a pretty significant effect on the market those unintended consequences I mean how much variable do you see in what impact that could potentially have because a lot of this is down to the discipline of the individual flag states and companies to actually adhere to this the enforcement mechanisms within cii are pretty weak so we are relying on the goodwill of companies like yourselves to do what you are saying and apply these rules yeah that's the other weakness that is that the enforcement regime is uh, unknown it's it's simply unclear uh, one could say uh, this was a little bit uh, similar uh, to uh, the 2020 um, 0 0.5 uh, rule on uh, on sulfur emissions, which uh, seems to have been uh, put in place uh, by everybody very quick. Uh, so enforcement is uh, is an un uh, unclear point here. The other thing that I believe that's unclear is that we will only see the data after one year. And after that one year, depending on whether the, the ships are falling in C, D, E uh, categories, or of course, A and B, you have uh, either three years or one year to, to correct. So of course, you're right. Could there be some speculation in, in, in delaying um, uh, compliance? Uh, maybe so, but you know, for us, uh, uh, as I'm putting it, we're gonna, we're gonna comply uh, straight off the back uh, we don't believe there should be any choice and we believe there should be an even stronger and clearer uh, enforcement mechanism. Mm. And obviously the IMO has the uh, potential to review the methodology and to tighten these regulations post 2026. But I mean, the immediate impact is going to see a lot of ships rated below C in that A to E rate rating that you've just mentioned. I mean, where do you see MSC, how many how many ships below C do you think you will have, given the um, fairly you know significant influx of tonnage, some older tonnage over the last uh, couple of years? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course I know what you're alluding to, and I think we have to separate the the issues a little bit. I mean, we took on a lot of uh, second-hand tonnage because we were serving a significant demand that was in the market. And I think it would have been much worse for the world uh, if we had not uh, done that. And if we if we wouldn't have done it, I'm pretty sure somebody else uh, would have done it. And the only way that uh, we could have served that demand was to basically, you know, pick up the ships that was out there in the in the market. So that's really belonging to uh, to covid and the and the period and I, I do believe that our industry played a significant role in the in the covid lockdown because had it not been for you know our seafarers uh, our ships uh, our containers i think uh, the covid uh, period would have been a lot worse than what uh, people in the end uh, expected it now um that being said, we also have a large uh, order book, and uh, that's of course of uh, new and very efficient ships. Uh, this order book will be there to replace some uh, less efficient ships. Uh, that's very clear. Uh, will be there to replace some of the second-hand ships. Will be there to replace some of the less efficient charter ships. So we are definitely going into this with the mindset that the, the new efficient ships will be there to comply and and hopefully be even better than the than the than the rules. Then. Uh, we are also retrofitting a number of ships, it's worth saying. Um, 
energy efficiency uh, has been important until now, but it will remain important in the next many years because the, the cost of fuel will only go one way if you think about 10, 20 years, uh, and, and that's up. So the notion of energy efficiency is still very much uh, important. And for that reason, we are retrofitting a large part of our fleet. We are, of course, also retrofitting with future fuels in mind uh, so that we have ships that are ready for, for those fuels when they are available. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more, if you don't mind, because there is a lot being made of the orders that are going out there, some methanol fuel vessels, uh, dual tri-fuel options. But you've made the point publicly that there is no zero carbon ready fuels at scale available right now. So you are planning for a future here. Do you think there's enough attention being paid to the immediate efficiency requirements of the existing fleets? Because retrofits are fine, uh, they're possible, but it's fair to say that not every ship owner is currently you know making these adjustments as and when they go into to dry dock there there seems to be a significant amount of the industry that is holding off on the basis of a future yet to come well uh, you know we cannot uh, solve this situation by by not doing anything as you say and uh, and uh, also it's true i've said publicly that you know uh, stating targets uh, doesn't really get us anywhere we got to see uh, concrete uh, actions we have been asking regulators for a, for a few things, which I'm sure we'll get into when we talk uh, ETS. We have asked that we have a, a global playing field when it comes to a carbon price. Uh, we have asked uh, uh, that we make sure that we get certain regulations about uh, what ships can be built. For instance, we have said publicly, uh, why don't we just say that by a given year, only these types of ships can be can be built. That way we give sufficient lead time to the energy producers, the energy providers, and they have a line of sight so that they know that the investments they will make now, the significant investments, the chicken and the egg syndrome, will actually have uh, you know, foot on earth because by that time, ship owners uh, can only build uh, uh, these uh, ships. Remember, it's not the uh, uh, lack of technology for shipbuilding that's out there. We can build these ships for the future fuels. What is lacking is the future fuels at uh, at scale. Then we have also been uh, advocating very uh, hard and still do that. Uh, we we're still missing a global R&D fund. Uh, if you take the uh, if you take the ETS, it goes into a you know European tax. But we really need uh, global solutions because the the conundrum with the um, energy transition is, of course, there's no single company in itself that can solve this riddle. This requires really strong partnerships across the value chain. And it's really a missed opportunity that every single company, ourselves included, have to become uh, the experts on, on these things. At the end of the day, I mean, we are a transport and logistics company. We are probably not the best experts, the best placed to know what the future fuels should be. So those are some of the things that are uh, that are that are that are missing. And indeed, as I said before, energy efficiency remains important. And we are uh, retrofitting our existing ships because it's also important to remember we're not going to solve this by scrapping our 700 ships and building uh, 700 new ones. I'm not sure that would be very efficient for the environment either, uh, because uh, uh, the building of new would also cause significant uh, upstream uh, upstream emissions. So we need to do retrofitting, and we need to replace the. Uh, the fleet with more efficient ships and of course we need to do it at the pace where the fuels are are ready you you seem to be very much in the rapid evolution rather than revolution camp which makes some sense given the scale of the challenge ahead and the the the, the pace that is being required by the regulations 
but you mentioned specifically uh, emissions trading and of course we don't know some of the details but we do know that emissions trading is coming in within Europe next year I wonder what sort of impact you see that happening uh, having on shipping um, and and specifically the, the the complexities that that requires of shipping companies which you know you said yourself you are not the experts in you are a a large very efficient shipping company you're not a carbon trading company how do you adapt and what sort of impact do you think that's going to have let me just say on the evolution versus revolution first that uh, i very much agree with that because we see this as a transition you know we're not going to go from emitting uh, a lot of co2 to emitting uh, no co2 in a matter of uh, a handful of years this will be a transition and this is also by the way why we have gone down the path of uh, of lng because there we know we can uh, cut our emissions there we know the socks and knocks are nearly uh, um, eliminated there we know the black carbon is uh, is not coming out and there is plenty of supply of lng at least until recently with the with the war and we can see a pathway for lng mixed with biomethane liquefied where we can actually improve the emissions so it's very important to say that for for me that we see it as a transition lng we know at fossil base will not be the solution but it'll be an important uh, transition fuel anyway we will not for our 700 plus ships i believe have one solution we will have a range uh, of solutions so let me just uh, add that when it comes to the ets yes uh, uh, you know we see it. Uh, we, we see it coming. It seems uh, more plausible, given we are at the very late stage of the year, that uh, it's going to be implemented in um, 2024 rather than 2023. Um, right now, it seems to be a, a tax on shipping, uh, and uh, obviously, uh, we will uh, pass that tax uh, on to our customers. We have no choice. So we have gone out with the uh, and. An overview to our customers by trade to explain them what this means in terms of uh, additional cost that they should expect from the time that this becomes um, uh, official. Um, one thing I, I, I wish to to stress here is that I find it extremely concerning that the ETS is open for anybody and not just for the companies that are having factual emissions. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, in fact, any person, uh, individual, any fund, any private equity, any anybody who wants to speculate can go in and buy these uh, carbon uh, credits and trade them. And I think this is really concerning because this is leading only to one thing, inflationary pricing. And that means that inflationary pricing will eventually have to be passed on to the to the client. I think that's a very unfortunate and unintended uh, consequence. It should be the companies that have emissions that should be able to buy um, those uh, uh, those schemes. And then um, then obviously, uh, as we have said, we want to have a global playing field now. That didn't happen, or it seems not to happen. Now Europe is coming with a with a tax, and and obviously we could very well expect that uh, other parts of the world will come with their taxes, and we we will have a lot of regional schemes, and of course it becomes uh, difficult uh, for us, but ultimately also for our customers to navigate in this uh, reality. But also for the EU ETS, we will certainly uh, comply. We have set ourselves up to be uh, to be ready. Uh, and obviously, uh, we understand why the, the the concept is there, and it uh, it supports the, you know over time to reduce the the CO2 emissions, which is of course the whole objective for all of us, because this is really the big goal that we have to attain. 
on on that carbon pricing, carbon trading, obviously we we have market-based mechanisms being discussed at the IMO level. We've got the emissions trading coming in 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 Europe. There are a lot of numbers being bandied around in terms of an ideal carbon price for shipping. Uh, I know one of your competitors was out at COP talking about $150 per tonne of CO2 emitted based on a life cycle analysis. Uh, with the likes of Trafigura have been positing two to $300. Do, do you have an ideal carbon price that would allow the industry to move forward or is that too much of a fluid number right now for you to put a, a, a hard figure on? I don't think we have an ideal number, uh, but uh, I will offer a couple of perspectives. Number one, we, we prefer that there's a global playing free field and we prefer that there's an alignment globally so that we don't have all these regional schemes. Uh, uh, that's, uh, that's one thing. And then obviously over time, the carbon price should be there to support the equalization between uh, the fossil-based fuels and the future uh, net zero fuels, so they should be in there to compensate for part of the part of the difference. Uh, that's uh, that's what we uh, that's what we really believe in. Uh, more importantly, is to have a global uh, setup rather than to have all these regional schemes, because I think it's going to be, quite frankly, uh, very very difficult. But we also understand the urgency because we also have to underline, of course, as a responsible company and as, as responsible citizens and, and, and people that we are in a climate crisis and that means that we have to take action more than uh, more than anything and uh, and that I fully respect and and that's why I'm underlining that you know we will be uh, fully compliant and we, we see both CII and ETS as things will be compliant with and they will over time uh, reduce the emissions for sure the the scale of MSC allows you to do things that the average shipping company can't. Uh, you are not the average. The average shipping company owns five ships. You own several hundred ships, uh, significantly more than you did at the beginning of the, the pandemic. You, you've taken in a lot of tonnage. You have a large order book. How important is scale per se for MSC in terms of your strategic ambitions? Well, uh, Richard, I mean, scales, scale matters uh, in this industry because traditionally, and we, we have to make sure we don't get uh, swayed too much by the last 18 months, which have been extraordinary in the positive sense. Uh, we have to also remember uh, the many years, not months, uh, we've had prior to that where the industry had a hard time, uh, you know, uh, to make a, a decent living. And therefore, scale uh, is important because that's the way you can compete uh, against the, the price pressure. We, of course, don't expect, uh, we don't hope uh, that uh, we will return to uh, pre-pandemic uh, levels. Uh, we, are, we are seeing the downturn that the whole market is, is talking about, but, uh, but for sure we are not expecting that it will, it'll, it'll go all the way back. But scale is important for that, uh, for that matter. Uh, then scale is also important in order to offer a good and competitive network to our clients. Uh, a broad network with, you know, several departures, uh, good frequency, good coverage, uh, direct port pairs, as opposed to offering too much in transshipment. So scale matters. Uh, but of course, at the end, scale also matters only if you're able to um, uh, transition the scale into into efficiency, right? I mean, scale for the, for the sake of it is not important. So that I would, I would say that uh, to you. And as I said before, 
Uh, we have taken on a lot of second-hand tonnage. We have replaced uh, a lot of charter ships uh, because uh, this has been a more efficient way of uh, for us to to operate. We are more in control. We can control the fuel efficiency better, and we have of course taken these second-hand uh, ships on board to serve the demand that was there. This extraordinary demand that was there for all of 21 and for um, the first half of 22. Mm. A, a lot of the ships that you took in. Uh, let's be honest they, they they were older ships and uh, while i can well understand that they will be operated in a more efficient manner under the umbrella of msc than if they were anywhere else they are still ships that you know have a finite lifespan how, how do you balance that um influx of older tonnage with the efficiency requirements and the market going the way it is. How do you maintain that profitability and what does that sort of exit look like for the older ships, do you think? Well, as I said, those ships would have been traded uh, by by us or by anybody else, uh, so that wouldn't have uh, that wouldn't have made any difference. But we did this to serve the demand that was uh, right there for for MSC. Plus, uh, you of course not only have, need to have the ships, you need to have the containers. But uh, these ships, um, uh, some of them, uh, uh, you know, they're not all old. That would be uh, too much of a generalization. So some of them we are we're definitely going to keep for the for the longer term. We're gonna we're gonna retrofit and make sure that they re- they remain efficient. Some will be replaced as we um, as we get uh, you know the the order book delivered in the next uh, in the next three years. And um, and then obviously some uh, will also go in to support the CII requirements where these ships will go in and. And, and basically be an additional vessel to lower the speed, which is what is required in the current uh, enforcement regime, because we are basically missing uh, the fuels. We have to remember CII can be met in in a few different ways. Uh, you can add ships and, and, and reduce the speed. That's probably what's going to happen in the immediate uh, uh, future. Eventually, we will have to transition to the new fuels. Then you meet the requirements, or you take off uh, ports uh, as another means to um, slow down your, your schedule. Probably mm. taking off ports is uh, the, the least advisable um, uh, route right now, because obviously, if we're in a, a more depressed economic climate, it's going to be harder to fill your assets with with fewer ports. But those are essentially the, the options that uh, that one has. And you've got considerably more options than most. You have flexibility because of your scale. I wonder if I could ask a cheeky question and ask whether MSC ultimately sees seeks independence from the alliances and the flexibility that they perhaps offered others. I've seen this reference in the in the public debate. Uh, what I can tell you is that the, we are we are continue to be part of 2M. I, I think. I mean, I was you could say on the other side of the table when that deal was uh, was made. But uh, I can only say that uh, I believe that the alliance has served uh, shippers very well in terms of offering a very broad network, very much stability, operational efficiency that it has brought. Uh, remember. Those uh, that alliance, and I think what followed in the other alliances was were made to really create a broader network, more efficiency at a time where the liner companies really needed it because the, there was significant pressure on the on the freight rates. And our agreement runs for another uh, two plus years, so we'll see at that time. Uh, it takes, uh, of course, two to tango, but uh, we are very happy to be part of uh, 2M. Okay, thank you. The other point about 
MSC's fairly rapid expansion is that it's not just about ships. You, you've you've made some interesting purchases in the logistics space. Uh, there are many other purchases in terms of expanding MSC's reach. Could you perhaps give us a sort of flavour of, of how you see that developing strategically, particularly with deals like the Bellore, uh one waiting in the wings for approval? I, wa- I wonder how you see that panning out over the next few years, because that could be potentially game changing. Yeah, I mean, we we have always been a company that have, you know, been growing aggressively and, and you're right, initially it was really focused on the on the shipping in the in the last few couple of years, of course, more broadly. But uh, but if we start with the logistics, I mean, we have been expanding our logistics business actually uh, in, uh, in the last couple of uh, decades. So it's not entirely a new thing, but uh, you're right. We have certainly accelerated that uh, logistics expansion in the last uh, couple of years. We, we, we see uh, a strong demand from uh, clients uh, who wants uh, that we offer them some more. So we are really, you know, uh, expanding that. We have since also a couple of decades a terminal business, TIL, and now you're right, uh, we're adding a big piece to that with uh, with uh, with Bolloray. Bolloray will remain an independent entity, I, I, I should underline, and we're just waiting for the last couple of approvals, and then hopefully we can um, we can proceed with uh, with Bolloray becoming part of uh, the MSC family. Then. Recently, we have also ventured into to towards. Last year, we set up MedTalk, and uh, this year we have announced uh, an acquisition that's yet to be approved. We hope it will be approved sometime in the first quarter of Remokiatori that are present mainly in the Mediterranean and in Asia. And then uh, we are we just took delivery a couple of days ago of our new uh, brand new MC Air Cargo. So we are. You could say we are we are expanding in, in into other uh, logistics products, but they are all uh, logically you could say uh, uh, linked to our core business, uh, which is the MSC container uh, shipping, and they are all there based on clear demand from our clients. Okay. Um, final question, if you don't mind, um, it's that time of year where I think everybody is looking to what happens next. Can I ask you to get your your crystal ball out and, uh, and make a a prediction in terms of what you think the industry looks like in 2023? Uh, this is perhaps not the, the 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 Christmas present you want to open, uh, uh, Richard. But uh, uh, I would I would say to you that in general I have uh, I have since a while stopped uh, offering uh, my prediction because I think one thing uh, that is very uh, true for the world and one thing that's been very common for a lot of people who are trying to predict is that they have always been wrong because there's always one or two or three uh, U-turns uh, ahead of us that we couldn't predict. I mean, if we just take the recent past, nobody predicted COVID. It came. Certainly, nobody predicted that COVID would yield would would lead to a, a very uh, a significant consumption growth and thereby a, a significant uh, upturn for the global transport market. That was completely not in the cards. And finally, it was not at all foreseen by anybody, and we can see that by the way energies, uh, the energy uh, plans have been made for Europe, that uh, there would be a war in our backyard. So. I'm sure, and what I'm telling you is, I'm sure there'll be a few twists and turns uh, ahead of us that we can't uh, uh, predict. 
But absent of that, I would say that uh, the world normally uh, recovers after two or three quarters of uh, weaker demand, which is what we have been seeing since uh, late summer. So I would not be surprised if the world also recovers uh, sometime during uh, 2023. Is it, you know, during Q2, Q3, uh, where we will start seeing a little bit of uh, positive growth? That's normally uh, the case. If you look into the history books after three or four quarters, the world kind of uh, recovers and then we get back to uh, probably some more uh, modest growth. And uh, uh, if we can get uh, the inflation a little bit under control, and it seems that it's improving in some places, at least it's uh, stabilizing. And, and and if we can, uh, of course, make sure that uh, we are keeping a strong employment, then uh, I think there is some room for, for cautious optimism, even though there may be uh, still a couple of uh, more difficult quarters ahead of us. But um, all these other uh, uh, twists and turns that uh, that nobody knows. I'm not going to predict for you either because I know I can't. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but but, uh, but we will uh, we will see. Uh, we also have to remember, and and maybe this is linked to your question on on, on borrowing. I mean, there are still parts of this world that, uh, uh, of course, uh, see massive population growth. Uh, Africa, Asia. Um, Latin America, there are parts of this world and it's more or less the same parts where the GDP per capita is still, you know, significantly below that we know in the in the Western world. And all these uh, all these people, of course, uh, wish uh, to to lead a life maybe similar to to what we do. And uh, they aspire to do this. And I don't uh, blame them one uh, one second. So I'm sure we will see with time, with bumps in the road, some improvements also in those continents. And that's what we are here to serve as a as a global shipping company and as a global logistics company. And that is where we will leave it for this week. My thanks to Soren for taking the time to talk to me this week. As many of you will have already spotted, Mr. Toft comes in at number four on our annual Lloyd's List Top 100. If you haven't had a chance to read the rest of the profiles, I would highly recommend that you do. No doubt many of you will disagree with the list, and I look forward to your many angry letters on the subject. But read it you must. I will be tapping up many of the rest of the Top 100 as podcast guests over the coming months. But for now, thank you for listening. I'll be back next Friday with more audio trees for you. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.